If you're visiting with us, we're making our way through Psalms, so uh, we're going to be in Psalm 9 today. We're in Psalm 8 last week, so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a Psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my right cause, my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift, up, lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let not the nations, let the nations be judged, be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word and we do ask that you would uh, indeed meet with us. We pray that you would speak through your servant. This broken and frail servant who has no right to stand before your people. Father, thank you for ordaining this very moment. Thank you for using the foolishness of preaching to make us wise, for using the foolishness of proclaiming a risen Savior to give us hope and strength and comfort even here and now. And so would you do this for your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um... When I was growing up, we used to go to Rapids on the Reservoir or either Waterland. So give me some noise if you know what Rapids on the Reservoir is. All right. Or, or Waterland, in case you don't know what it is. It's a, it was a water park, right? And so Waterland was like right down 51 kind of on, on State Street. And Rapids on the Reservoir, you got on the spillway. As soon as you got off on the other side to the right, there was this water, water park, right? 
And growing up, we loved it, right? We loved the, the wave pool, how you kind of get in the wave pool and they turn on the machines and you kind of go and you kind of coast and you go and you coast. And then they have all of these sort of these, these slides that you would ride. And, and, and we used to love it, right? We used to pack up in a van and everybody from my neighborhood would go to one of those parks and it was a joy, right? So we, we just went on vacation and we went to what I thought would be like a waterland, right? We went to Six Flags right outside of D.C. And we got my, my, my kids wanted me in the wave pool with them. I got in the wave pool and it brought back memories, right? And then there was all of these slides around us. And I'm thinking, man, this does not look like the old Waterland slides, right? And so we, we go up and, and one slide, there were four of you could go down at the same time in one inner tube. And we just didn't have that, right? And, and if you remember Waterland or Rapids, you remember how we used to sort of get on those slides. All of them were the same way, right? You climb up, you walk up the steps, and then you sit, right? You have to sit down, and then some person right there would, would make you cross your, your hands, and you would lay out, and then you would just have, kind of have to scoot, right? <laughs> and you would scoot, and then you would go down like this, but, but you could see, you could see everywhere you were going, and so we went to this park and, and we saw this slide called the Bunzai Pipeline. And I'm thinking, that one looks cool to ride. So we go all the way to the top. It wasn't a real long wait. We get to the top and it wasn't your waterland slide, right? So this slide, it, this is how you mount it. You literally get into a pod, right? <laughs> and you do this, right? And then the bottom, the, the, the door opens, right? and you kind of drop into the abyss, <laughs> and you're dropping it like 40 miles an hour, and you can't see, and it feels like your brain is still kind of up there, right? And we did not do that one twice. It was, it was, it was awful, right? I, I mean, just, and I, we came down, and I was laughing with my kids, but like, I was struggling with that ride. <laughs> there was something about the bottom kind of falling out. That, that, that it jarred me and it, it caught me off guard. I, I didn't like the way it felt. There was something about kind of falling into the darkness and you can't see where you're going. And so you're just kind of there in it, falling. Look, if, if you want to compare Psalm 8 and Psalm 9, Psalm 8 is like the old waterland ride, right? You're at the top and you can see clearly. You know what's coming and, and the glory of the Lord, you can see it. Psalm 9... It's like six flags, right? The door opens, the bottom falls out. That when you read Psalm 8, David's in a good place. And you read Psalm 9, and he's not. And that transition is sudden. Why would the arranger, because I would agree that, that numerous people wrote the Psalms, different authors, different epochs in history, but why would the person who arranged them, right, who put them in the order that we have them, why in the world would Psalm 8, when you're in the heights of life and you see clearly the glory of the Lord, and then in Psalm 9, the bottom falls out? Why would he take you on this emotional roller coaster? And you know why? Because if you live long enough, that's life. One minute, everything is good. And all it takes is one phone call and the bottom falls out. One minute, everything is good. Your job is secure. 
And all it takes is the bottom to fall out. You see, I think whoever's arranging the Psalms, that the reason we go on this emotional roller coaster of up and down and up and down, because if we're really honest about living life, your life will be an emotional roller coaster. One day you're in the heights and you see clearly. And the next day you're in the pits. The Psalms will take us on this emotional roller coaster because our lives will. The bottom will fall out. What do we do, right? The bottom falls out. What do we do when we're falling into the darkness? How do we endure that? That's the question that I think we're facing. I think the first thing David shows us is that we probably ought to anticipate these surprising and sudden shifts and circumstances. That because of where we live, we almost need to live with this sense that I may be fine today, but tomorrow things will come crashing down. That I may, I may be fine today, but tomorrow things may not be. That I think the key to unpacking this psalm is verses 13 and 14. Notice where David is. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, and see my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises. Notice verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. You see where he is? He's in a place of deep affliction. He's at the brink of the gates of death, and he is asking the Lord to arise. And notice, remember in Psalm 8, the one mention of the enemy came in Psalm 8 too, where even then in Psalm 8 too, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal or silence the enemy and the avenger. And so in Psalm 8, even when the enemy or the avenger is mentioned, it's mentioned once, but he's silenced, right? Through the praise of small things and small people. But now notice the contrast in Psalm 9. Notice how much enemy and enemies, how, notice how much it comes up. Look in verse 3, my enemies, plural, they turn back, right? So all of a sudden, they're back. Enemies are back with the vengeance. Notice verse 5, the nation. So it's not just a person. It's the, the, the nations which you have made the wicked to perish. Notice verse 6, the enemy now came to an end and everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. So it's nations and cities. Enemies is plural, Notice verse 13, that this affliction has the potential to bring him to the brink of death. Notice verse 15, the nations have set out a net to ensnare him. Verses 16 and 17, he calls the nations the wicked ones. Beloved, the enemy is back. What had been silenced in Psalm 8, what had receded to the background in Psalm 8, is now at the foreground in Psalm 9. This isn't normal affliction, but affliction caused by the wicked. And this isn't just affliction caused by a wicked person, but David says entire cities and nations who hate him. And it's not just affliction caused by nations. I think the key 
verse in this passage is, is verse 4. Notice what David says. For you have maintained my just cause. This isn't just affliction. This isn't just affliction by one person, but cities and nations. And at this point in David's life, guess what? He's in the right. This isn't like Psalm 51 when he's asking the Lord for forgiveness because of some sin he's committed. It's not like Psalm 3 when his past is catching up to him because of his interfamily dynamics. In Psalm 9, David says, I'm righteous. You have maintained my just and righteous cause. I'm innocent in this moment right here. Now, see if I can illustrate, the, illustrate this, right? So hip hop turned 45 this week which means that the genre of hip hop has been around for 45 years. I just turned 40, so I kind of grew up in that generation that listened and loved and loves good hip hop, right? There's one song I'm gonna kind of uh, talk about, right? And, and see if you might see if it resonates with David. And it's by CeeLo Green, and this is before CeeLo used to sing, right? He used to be a rapper with a group called Goody Mob. And CeeLo has this song. He says, uh, late one night, I was in the pearl white, Acura, legendary. I got that thing with me. If it's necessary, I was just riding. Wasn't even thinking about colliding. And I kept seeing the same headlights running stop signs and red lights. And he says, I didn't prepare myself to die if it's my time to go. He says, you know what it is. You done said it before. Of course, I'm going to be mad. But here, you can have it if you want it that bad that you would take from me. I ain't no star. I value both of our lives more than this car. And you lucky. I used to be you and bust a hole in your chest somebody could see through. And you could have died tonight, and I would have been in the right. But you, I ain't even tripping about my car. You can keep my car and drop me off at the house. Now, what does CeeLo say, right? Let me decode it, right? <laughs> he was in a pearl white Acura legend, riding, kind of minding his business. And he looks in his rearview mirror and he sees the same headlights. It's running stop signs and it's running red lights. And he says, you know what? I done prepared myself to die. It's my time to go, right? And the guy comes up to him, you know what it is, you done said it before, right? And what he's saying, this dude's trying to rob me and take my car. And CeeLo was just like, here, of course I'm going to be mad, but if you want it that bad, you can have it, right? And he says, remember, you could have died tonight, and I would have been in the right. Now, what is he saying? He is saying, by law, I have a right to carry, and you didn't sneak up on me. I saw you coming. But he says, tonight. You could have died, I was in the right. But I ain't even tripping about a car. You take me to the house, take my car, just drop me off, right? Hear what CeeLo was saying? If I would have done something tonight, I was in the right. That's what David is saying in the text. He's done nothing wrong. Trouble is pursuing him. He has been upright in heart. And what he is in danger of having happened to him does not line up with his conduct. This is injustice. 
David is saying, I've done nothing to deserve what's happening in Psalm 9. Look, we aren't military commanders like David. But remember, ambiguity is our friend in the Psalms. It's an invitation to invite us in the story. Have you ever unjustly, right? Not when you've done something bad and your consequences are catching up with you, but when you've been upright in heart and then persecution and suffering comes, when you've done nothing to deserve it, right? And see, I think this starts on a smaller scale. It starts when our kids are kids and they go to a new school and you're the new person and you've done nothing and no one wants to be your friend, right? It's not just. They don't know you. And, they're, and you're being punished for no reason, right? It starts there, and, and it goes on to college, right? If you, you were meeting with your advisor, you got this job lined up, and this company wants to pay you, and you, your graduation is May 15th, boom, and you go and do your senior records check with your advisor, and they tell you, look, you're good to walk. And you get to your about graduation, and you're not good to walk. It's a class that somebody missed that you didn't take, and so now you have been treated unjustly. You've done the work. You've asked them over and over again, can I graduate? You get it? it, it it's there on that level, right? It's there, even there, that you were passed on a promotion, right? That you and your family were banking on this promotion, and you get passed by even when you were told, do these things, and it's coming your way. It's unjust, and it happens on a, on a larger scale that you've been a loving and faithful husband or wife, right? And you get that call, I no longer want to be married to you. And sure, you had your problems, right? But that outcome does not equal to what we really had going on. I have not betrayed the marriage covenant. Or you're driving down the road and you're obeying the stop sign and the stoplights. You're going the speed limit. And somebody texting and driving on their phone, right? And they hit you. And they total your car. It's unjust. You were obeying the traffic laws. And now you got to find a new car because someone else wasn't. You see, you live long enough and we will be in these situations that it, 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 it's corporate as well. Think about medical premiums that some of you pay and then this little thing over here isn't covered and you've been paying medical stuff for 20 years and all of a sudden this isn't covered? Where is justice in that? What about Native Americans, right, who live in this country? Do you think that they would pray what David says in Psalm 9? That the nations and cities, they hate us. They want to shut us up and take the land and put us on reservations. If you are truly attuned to American history, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be broken as well. What about African-Americans, right? You don't think we feel the heart behind Psalm 9? Nations are trading us and buying us and we're nothing but property. You don't think we feel this right here, 
What about mass incarceration? Two men do the same crime, and yet because one is born black, he is given more time. You get it? It's all in the system here. What about the unborn? All the unborn did was be conceived by two people. And all of a sudden, their life can be, can be sniffed out of here like nothing. Do you think that they would cry the cry of Psalm 9? That the cities and nations and governments, they are against me. You see, when you look long and hard at life on this earth, then what we're going to come up against is injustice. So David feels, what have I done to deserve this, O oh Lord? You're maintaining my righteous cause. That's why Peter says, do not be surprised by the fiery trials. You get it? Peter is showing us, don't be surprised, right? Unfortunately, this is life here. And now, you and I and we will see and encounter injustice. The second thing David shows us is, is we can imagine this possibility of a surprising response to injustice. What's surprising about David's response is in verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 14. Notice how the psalm starts. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. And we have to make an interpretive decision here, right? Where is the point in the Psalms that is David's present experience? And I think it's in 13 and 14. When David says, be gracious to me, O Lord, and see my affliction from those who hate me. O you lift me up from the gates of death. He says, look at verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And so what you're starting to see is that, 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 that David's in a bad place in 13 and 14. But you want to know what precedes anything that David acts of the Lord. What comes first in this psalm is not, Lord, deliver me. What comes first in the psalm is I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds, even in the midst of injustice. That word right there, recount, it carries with this this idea of taking a tally and etching it in stone. Think of what David is saying. While you want my life unjustly, I'm going to sit and I'm going to take a tally of God's wonderful deeds towards me. Think about that. Isn't that how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? That, 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 that we have much to ask God of. We need food. We need shelter. We need protection. But do you remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Our Father, who dwells in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he does say, give us this day our daily bread. But notice how the prayer starts. It starts with a recentering and a refocusing on the glory and triumph and power of the Lord, even in the face of injustice. Powerful, right? That's exactly what David is doing. His primary concern here is to see the Lord rightly. Are we reading this correctly? I don't know about you, but when I'm treated unjustly, prayer is kind of the last thing I want to do. Disbelief? Is this a dream? Is this really real? Anger? Something in us is wired towards justice, and so anger over injustice is a right response, but consuming fear, right? Powerlessness? Revenge? I'll get even? I'll show them? Isn't it easy to fight fire with fire? Being embittered? Have you ever talked to a person whose soul has been so marked with injustice that, they, that it's like they're living in a time trap that they can't get over and outside of this one thing that happened back here? Do you know what injustice can do to your soul? That we can become like what harms us. In fighting against racism, we can become racist. In fighting against injustice, we can become the ones who inflict injustice upon others. In fighting against hate, if we don't watch our hearts carefully, we will be the ones hating. In fighting against our pain, we can turn around and inflict pain. They lawyer up and sling mud. I'm a lawyer up and sling mud as well. Do you see, beloved? that getting this thing right is crucial. And some of those responses are good, but what we rarely hear about people doing and what I rarely do in my own heart is start with prayer and go right back to the throne. There is a better way. There's a third way. One way says fight fire with fire. One way says turn a blind eye. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. And David says, no, there's a third and higher way. Do you believe it that there's a better way? Not ignoring, but not being inflamed by it. That it's possible to have an anchor so strong that your soul is resting upon. That when trials come and assault you, the anchor holds and it stands. That, 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 that though you slay me, yet I will praise you. We sing that song, but it's hard to sing it when we're in that place. And here is what David is inviting us into. This whole new way to respond to injustice. What's the key? What's the secret? This looks weak, but it takes a lot of strength, a lot of trust. What's the reason? And here's what David says, our last point. It's a surprising reason, the throne of justice. We have to ask ourselves, what are the wonderful deeds that David says I will count, that I will tally? 
What are the wonderful deeds that you see in verse 11 when David commands Israel to tell among the peoples his deeds? What are the wonderful deeds that many of you see above the, the chapter heading nine where it's been labeled, I will recount your wonderful deeds? What are those deeds that David is, is remembering and recounting and being reminded of? What are they? And here's the thing. We have to let Psalm 9 tell us what the wonderful deeds are. And you want to know what the wonderful deeds are that David recounts and remembers in the face of injustice? God has established his throne forever. He has established his throne in verse 7 for justice. In other words, beloved, when you look at this psalm, the wonderful deeds that David will recount in Psalm 9 are the things he recounts in Psalm 9. And what does he recount in Psalm 9 that ought to be wonderful for us in the face of injustice? Look at verse 4. The throne of justice and the God on that throne will maintain your righteous cause. Verse 7, you have established your throne for justice. Verse 8, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment, which is also translated, he has done justice. Look at verse 19, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged. In other words, David is using this triad Hebrew, Hebrew language for justice and judgment and righteousness, and it's all bound up in one. And here are the righteous deeds, the wonderful deeds that David remembers. The Lord will always judge rightly, and he will never do it wrongly. David is remembering the nations who attacked Israel and the Lord got to work and, and moved on their behalf. And David is saying, the Lord has judged faithfully in the past. The Lord is going to do it right now and the Lord is going to do it forever and evermore. The throne of justice is our hope in the face of injustice. And it's an active throne that David's enemies turned back and they stumbled and perished, that even in turning away, that, that, that the justice of God pursued them. And it's not arbitrary or a coincidence when justice happens. In verse 4, it's given out by God. It's a throne that accounts for what individuals do. If there were one million people and there was one righteous in the one million, this throne of justice would get it right. It's a throne that favors the afflicted and the poor and the oppressed. Give verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 12, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verse 13, see my affliction from those who hate me. Verse 18, the needy will not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. When you find yourself suffering injustice at the hands of someone who has more power, God says, my royal attention you now have. It's a reversing throne. 
that the tactics of the enemy in here is to silence and to shut David up. And then David says, the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not prepare us forever, but for the wicked. Look at verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The very memory of them has perished. In verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught, and they are snared in the work of their own hands. Do you see this throne reverses? The one who wants to silence the weak will be in the end silenced. The one who wants to lay a trap for the oppressed will end up falling in their own trap. This is a grand reversal. And David says it all comes from and happens by Yahweh. When we make much of God's throne of justice, changes how we deal with injustice. Did you catch what David did in this passage? Here's an assignment, like look at the word I in, in Psalm 9. And that's David talking about himself. I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad. I will sing. And look at the word he, right? Or you, right? You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name. Do you see? Do you catch what's going on? What is David doing in the psalm? Is he the one executing justice? Is he the one executing judgment? And the, question, the answer is no. He is the one praising, recounting, remembering, and entrusting. And he is giving these things over to the Lord, you do this. You sort this out. Where does the strength for this come from? This isn't natural. This is not what we do in our human strength. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you believer, you've been healed of an illness. And that illness is this. It's either passivity towards injustice or it's take matters into my own hands and do it myself. He says, you believer have been delivered from this. How? In 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24, he's talking about Jesus. He says, he committed no sin. And listen carefully, neither was there any deceit in found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You hear what Peter is saying? That Jesus did exactly what God is commanding us to do, that he was perfectly righteous and suffered the greatest injustice in the history of mankind. And he suffered this and he did nothing. Did he come down off the cross? Did he summon legions of angels? Did he flex his muscle? He says no. What he did in the moment of the greatest injustice under the heavens was to entrust himself to the Lord judges justly. That's what he did. Your salvation rests on your Savior getting this right. That's how he won our salvation, beloved, by entrusting his soul to the one who judges justly. And here is the connection between your salvation and your sanctification. It's connected. 
Notice what Peter says in light of this. Go up in 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this, to suffer unjustly, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Did you catch that? We're not just saved by Jesus doing that. This now becomes the standard. It's the knee-jerk reaction for the way that we live now, that when we encounter injustice, it will happen that we can go to the throne of grace because we have been bought with a price and the Father's heart and ear is always towards his people. And you know what your Father says to you? You are in Jesus. You can trust me. You can trust me to sort this out and to get this right. You, my daughter, rest in me. You, my son, rest in me. My throne will get all of this right either on the cross of my son or when my son returns injustice, every act of injustice will be accounted for. Every single one. Two places, either on the cross or when Jesus returns. That's freeing, right? It's freeing to know that our judge will judge justly. That the freedom to love our enemies and to pray for them and to serve them, it flows right out of the heart of the gospel. Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he didn't make that quote up. There was a Jewish rabbi who quoted it before him and another man who preached a sermon, Theodore Parker, in 1853. And they're all saying the same thing. Because the arc of the universe bends towards justice, which I would say because Yahweh is on the throne and will judge justly. We don't have to fight. We can rest and we can love and we can entrust. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be true for our hearts. Father, I imagine that in this room there are numerous different occasions and situations that we find ourselves in. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who will take it all to you in prayer who will live temperate and loving and faithful lives as we encounter injustice. Do this for your glory and your honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.